0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As we continue our walk through the gospel of Matthew, and if you haven't been with us, um, I just want to remind you, who is Matthew? Is this gospel all about Matthew? Well, it's, it's actually a book that he wrote to compile the, the life and teachings of Jesus. And he's, he's a follower of Jesus that spent time with him in his ministry, and he's put together the Gospel of Matthew, that's, that's what we are in this morning, to make a case that Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is the Messiah that the Jews had been hoping in that God would send a Redeemer to save his people. And as we have... Um, as Matthew has been introducing us to Jesus, uh, where we are kind of right now is this special context that kind of matters he 's been beginning his his uh, public ministry, okay and so his public ministry kind of starts off with two main things that are really important for us this morning. The first thing is he 's calling his disciples he starts calling people to follow him and listen to his teachings as he would be um, with them for the next few years and so he 's called some of his disciples. Uh, fishermen, not educated people, but just normal people that he would call to be his followers. So that's the first thing that we see in his public ministry. Second thing is he starts teaching and he does his miracles of healing around the region that he is teaching in. And he's gaining a lot of popularity, a lot of curious people thinking, who is this guy? Who is this new uh, teacher that we've, we've never heard anybody quite like him? And he's doing things that nobody else has done, so he has a lot of crowds following him. He has his disciples that he's called, these people who are going to be close to him for the next few years, but then also there's a lot of curious people, the crowds behind him. And that's where we were last week, as Jesus, this is verse 1 of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, his disciples came to him, and that began the section we call the Sermon on the Mount today, that's chapters 5 through 7, That is a first of the five major discourses of the Gospel of Matthew. So it's where Jesus starts teaching and we hear about what it would like to be a disciple of God's kingdom. That might be the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount, is what it would be like to live in God's kingdom. And so the first section of the Sermon on the Mount is something we commonly call the Beatitudes. And we don't usually use that word. So last week we talked about like as the happies or the blessings or the, the congratulations. And what Jesus does there with the Beatitudes is he's introducing us, to his, he's introducing his disciples to what it would be like to be a disciple of God's kingdom. What it would be like to be perfectly living in God's presence, what that person might look like. And so we kind of said it like this, that the Beatitudes are not so much something that you can do. It's not a list of uh, tasks that you need to complete to become a disciple. It's only something that you can be. And so a disciple of God's kingdom is painted, the identity is painted in the Beatitudes. And where we will be this morning in the next section is more of like the impact or the result of a changed life of a disciple. So I think we should reread the the first section of the Beatitudes. We'll start in verse 1 and then we'll continue on to verse 16 and we'll spend most of our time together in verses 13 through 16. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is verse 13, where we spend most of our time together this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. begin with a question I want you to consider that we'll come back to toward the end. What percent of your life are you in control of? If you had to measure and quantify all the factors that play into your day, that play into your week, play into your, your month, what percent of those things do you have control over? When you account for maybe your health, your education if you're in school, your grades, a really big test score, maybe your relationship with your your spouse, your children. All these things we, we have varying degrees of control over. So if you tried to sum it all up, what percent of your life would you say you have control over? And I'd maybe encourage you to write it down and maybe make it a fun lunch conversation. And the point I want to make here is not that you should be at like, I recognize I have 20% 20% control of my life, or I have 90% control of my life. That's not, that's not the point that I want to make. The point I want to make is none of us are really at 100%, are we? We probably have recognized that nobody in this room can go throughout their week and have everything that they thought would happen, happen. There's some things just kind of get out of control, and we, we recognize that, and that's somewhere we all stand. But the question I have for you is consider the part that you don't have control over. Maybe it's 60% of your life you feel like is outside of your control. And I want to propose that maybe the things that might be most disappointing in your life or maybe the most discouraging things in your life might fall into that percent of your life that you have limited control over. And I want to call us back to the time when we were in Ezra and Nehemiah and we asked a question, um, the thematic question of that series, Where do you want or need to experience renewal in your life? When I thought about that and and considered this text as I was, you know, preparing for this morning, I was thinking, those are the same; those things that I need renewal in are also the things I seem to have like limited control over. And making that connection was really profound for me as 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 I was studying this morning. So I think that's where we should be as we walk through this text, because a lot of the things that we have limited control over seem to be the things that or the areas of our life that seem to disappoint us or discourage us. And, and I think that you might have something in your mind regarding that. And so how is that relevant for this morning? Because the way you answer that and the way you respond to maybe the disappointments and discouragements in your life, the things you have limited control over for, the way you respond to those, the way you relate to those things, they, you kind of answer those from your identity. They, they are an outflow of who you are and who you believe you are. And so in the way that we looked at the Beatitudes as maybe the identity of a disciple of God's kingdom, it's important for us to take our text as verse 13 through 16 and tie that to the Beatitudes because the identity of a disciple will be played out as we read uh, verses 13 through 16. That is like the impact of a disciple of God's kingdom. And what I read here in verses 13 through 16 is kind of a section that Jesus starts playing out a few metaphors. There's three metaphors that I see here that I think will be uh, important for us to go through and will be kind of our guide and framework as we continue this morning. And we say metaphor. We all should know what a metaphor is, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit to make sure we're on the same page. A metaphor you know, is a figure of speech used to compare two things that are really not the same. It's, it's to make some sort of a point. And when Jesus used figures of speech, uh, it's, it's important to like, compare this to maybe how he would use a parable. Okay? And so parables of Jesus were a story that would go alongside some sort of a specific point that he was trying to make. And we talk about parables really only when we're talking about Jesus, so it's important to understand that. And so a parable is just like a little story that goes along some point. In the same way that we talk about like a parachute Right, a parachute is only as good as it gets you to the ground. And if you if you have a parachute, you jump off an airplane and you just perpetually stay in the sky, it's not a very useful parachute because it's supposed to bring you to the ground. In the same way we talk about like a paramedic. If you are a paramedic and you pick up a sick person, you're not a very good paramedic if you never get to the hospital. If you just start just driving around town and take a road trip and go to the Panda Express drive through, you you're not a very good paramedic. You're only as useful as you are as you get to the, the point of what you're, um, like a parachute brings you to the ground, a paramedic brings you to healthcare, and a parable is a story that brings you to some point. And so what we gotta do together is consider these metaphors that Jesus uses and say, what's the central point that he has in each of these? And that'll kind of be a framework for us to stay on track as we consider what I see as three metaphors. We have salt, Light and a lamp, that he uses to describe the impact of a disciple, and we're going to discuss the specific audience of who he's talking to, because that's really important to consider when he uses one of these figures of speech, and we'll consider the specific purpose. What's the central idea? What's the what's the point of the metaphor, and where is that taking us? Okay, so let's read. We're just going to dive into each in order. So we're going to start with verse thirteen. I'm going to reread that, and then we'll dig into it. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So let's stick to our framework. Remember, I said specific audience, specific purpose. So who is he talking to? Remember, we have this context of Jesus has his disciples in front of him. You know, this is the, the Sermon on the Mount still. And then he has the crowds, the curious crowds behind him. And starting in verse 11, he really kind of directs his attention to the disciples. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And he continues on with these metaphors. You are the salt of the earth. And so he's directing his te- attention to the disciples. And he's saying, if you are following me, if you're my disciple, you are salt. And so remember, this is a metaphor. So we've got to consider they're not literally salt. They're not sodium chloride. And so they're, they're making, what Jesus is doing is he's making a point that this is a metaphor. So what, do, what does salt mean here? So let's just ask the question, what's salt good for? What do we use salt for? But specifically, what would the disciples have considered salt was useful for if Jesus called them salt? Was it offensive? Was it a good thing? And what we need to glean from this is there's two primary purposes of salt that maybe would've come to mind in the, in the mind of uh, one of the disciples. One is it's a really good preservative, right? And we know this, we use salt as a preservative. Processed foods have salt in them. Beef jerky is not refrigerated because it has a lot of salt in it. And so as a preservative, salt is meant to preserve what's good. It, it prevents things from going bad. And if maybe you are a disciple and you are listening to this and Jesus calling you salt. Well, like, yeah, I use salt because last night when we killed the family goat and we didn't eat all of it, it was going to go bad if we didn't rub some salt into it. And so it had a valuable effect on what you put it into, and that's what salt's good for. And maybe a way that this, this is kind of silly, but it's like a way that you could look at this because we don't think of salt maybe as a preservative as much, and they didn't have a refrigerator to put their family goat into after they slaughtered it, is what if Jesus said, you are the refrigerators of the earth. But if refrigerators aren't cold, how are they going to prevent anything from going bad? So a refrigerator is only as useful as it keeps things cold and prevents stuff from going bad. That's why we use it. If you have a refrigerator that's not working, it's not a refrigerator. And so salt, to be salt of the earth is to provide some sort of preserving effect. And that's what the main meaning is. And, And then also salt's added to, the, to stuff to make it taste better. So not only do we use it for you know, preserving processed foods, uh, but it also tastes really good, and that's why we like salt. And so it kind of brings some sort of flavor out of what you put it into. It brings some sort of purpose or meaning. And so the two primary things are salt's a good preservative, and it, it gives some sort of meaning or gives some sort of taste to what you put it into. But let me ask you this. If salt is a preservative and, and tasteful um, you put in stuff to give it a taste, why is he calling this disciples salt of the earth? What's that imply about the earth? Well, if we put salt into stuff that would go bad, it means that the earth is kind of rotting away. It's kind of a, a decaying. And so the point of a disciple being in the earth is to have some sort of a preserving effect on what might be decaying. And in the same way, we could look at the world around us and see, well, how, is it gonna, how are we going to add flavor to uh, the earth around us. And, and the point I want to make here is that you could look around and see bad things happening in the world, see the earth rotting away and bad things um, happening in, in the news or something like that, and see this is kind of pointless. There, there might, might seem to be a lack of point and lack of purpose in some of the things that you and I see in the world. And so, what he's saying for the disciples is like, you're going to add some sort of a preserving effect on the world. And in the same way, you might add some sort of meaning to what otherwise may seem meaningless. In the latter half of that verse where it says how shall its saltiness be restored if it's not salty? Recognize that salt is only useful if you rub it into something, if you put it into something that would decay. It's only useful if you, you know, take take it out of the shaker and put it into something. And so what he's saying here is that a disciple is only useful if you put it into something that would be decaying. So the the point of being a disciple and the way he's using his metaphors is you're in intentionally and strategically put in a rotting away, decaying, maybe seemingly pointless world. And so there's some sort of a purpose to the disciple here. And a point I want to make here in connecting this to maybe like a whole Bible connection and, and just the life of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is you and I were created to live upward and outward lives. And what I mean that by that is when, when God made Adam and Eve, and he He put them in the garden. They had perfect relationship with him. They had perfect loving and obedience and faithfulness to the Father and had no broken relationship. And he gave them the garden and said, take care of the things that I made. You know, Name all the animals and take care of my creation. So they had this, Adam and Eve had this upward and outward life. But what sin did in the garden and sin does to you and I, it kind of messes that up. We, we forget the Our relationship with God, it kind of is broken in some sense. And we turn inward. We we turn downward and inward. And the things that we were meant to care for in the world, you know, it's upward and outward living. Rather than that, when we turn downward, the things around us that we were meant to love and serve and care for kind of become our subjects and vehicles of we want them to serve us. And that's something that kind of happens to you and I, and it's kind of the brokenness of a lot of our relationships is we forget who our Father is. We think we're on the throne and the things around us no longer are things that we serve but things that we want to serve us. And so that's kind of a good connection here to what this purpose of a disciple is. And it kind of gives you a glimmer of hope because in the same way that Adam and Eve were supposed to care for the garden, God, it means God is going to restore his disciples to do that again. Is we, we lost his ability to be uh, salt and light, or salt and have a preserving and, and, uh, and tastefulness to the earth, and God would restore that. So the specific purpose of salt here that I want you to consider is a disciple has a distinct and direct effect on the world around them, preserving what is good and bringing meaning to what may seem pointless. So let's move on. I, I don't want to spend too much time on each of these because we'll spend uh, the latter half Applying this, so verse fourteen. I'll read that again. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Okay. Well, this one's not too profound, but let's just ask the same questions. What is light good for? Light. It's good for lighting things up, shining. It might provide some sort of warmth. And what does that imply about the world? If you are the you are the light of the world, what's that imply about the world? It's dark. It may be cold. And so I, I think we talked about this last week, that the Sermon on the Mount is so amazing and what Jesus is saying is so good that I really don't have much to add to it. So that's kind of the case here. But I want to make an observation here that you might have picked up on as well. In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus says to his followers, he says, uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, um, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. So what I want you to pick up on here is in, in, um, in our metaphor, he's saying, you are the light of the world. He's talking to the disciples. You are the light of the world. But in John 8, he's saying, I am the light of the world. So how do we contend with this? And how do we understand what this light is that he's talking about? Because it's a metaphor. And so instead of me trying to explain it, uh, the Apostle Paul did a good job of it in 2 Corinthians 4. So... I'm just going to read 2 Corinthians 4 verses 5 to 6 and we'll, we'll look at that to help understand what he means by you are the light of the world. So verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. So he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's saying, what we, what we give good news about, what we tell people about is not us, okay? But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, Okay, so we're proclaiming not ourselves, but we're proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And then verse six says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what's that mean for us? If, if the disciples are the light of the world, the light that they're reflecting isn't from them. It comes from Jesus. It comes from knowing Jesus, knowing the gospel, and that is, re- is reflected in the world through the life of a disciple. And so it's God's design that knowing Christ must have an effect on your world around you because light can't be hidden. And that's the next thing. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, duh, everybody knows that. If you have a city built on a hill, that's the one you're gonna see. And this is uh, a way you could maybe flip it upside down is if you wanted to build a house in a place that nobody could find you, where would you build a house? It wouldn't be on a hill, it'd probably be in like a valley, right? You'd build a house in a valley to get away from people. And, or you, maybe you would, maybe not so much a location, but you'd find a, or it would be a location that nobody would ever look. So what's a place that you would build a house and nobody would ever look? Like like in a valley or western North Dakota? Because don't, we don't even have confirmation that's a real place. I don't know if anybody's ever been there. But if I was trying to get away from people, that's probably where I'd try and build a house. And so the point here is not so much like that you could, whether or not you could hide a city, but it's just pointing out the fact that light can't stop being light. That's the point I think Jesus has here to add a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So it's God's design that knowing Jesus, knowing Christ, must have an effect on your environment because that is the light that we have to show, not our own. And so remember the audience, right? We're still ta- Jesus is still talking to his disciples, and that's really important here. Because this would kind of be good news if, if you sit down and Jesus says, you are the light of the world. They're thinking, but I'm a fisherman. I'm an educated fisherman. I'm a tax collector. People don't really like me. How am I going to be light to the world? And the good news here that, that I want you to see is the disciples have everything they need to be the light of the world because it doesn't come from them. That's the purpose here. A disciple's life will radiate the light of the gospel, not their own. And that's the the purpose of verse 14 here that I want you to see. So now we'll continue uh, to verse 15. I'll read that again for us. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. All right, these aren't really brain busters, are they? Because we use Lights, you know, lamps to light up the house. If you have a lamp, it's probably on a table, right? Or, you know, most of our lights are on the ceiling. And so it's better to illuminate what you put it in if it's higher up. And so that's not not hard for us to understand. But what point is Jesus making here to say that people don't cover up a lamp after they light it? Well, the observation I want to make here is that this is kind of a big deal for Jesus to say that you are the salt of the earth or the light of the world. And the reason it's such a big deal is that they're so distinct that it would be against the disciples' nature not to have a preserving effect on the world. It would be against their nature not to illuminate what they're put in. That's what I see is that the lamps are meant to shine. You know, salt is meant to preserve. Light is meant to light up darkness. And so it would be against the disciples' nature to not reflect those things and those characters. And that's, I think, the the purpose of the metaphor is that a disciple's relationship to the world will be a result of their knowledge of the gospel, not the other way around. It doesn't come from the disciple, but it's actually an overflow from a changed heart. So let me maybe propose to you a question or ask you a question that will help us start to apply this as we continue. If Jesus is talking about the disciples as salt and light. And that means he's putting them in a, he's saying that they will be living in a rotting, decaying, cold, dark world. And so why would God make his kingdom like this? Why would he call his people to be put into something that would be dark, disappointing, cold, and dark and discouraging? Why would he, there's gotta be a better way for this. What is the purpose of this? If we're meant to live out and and illuminate the world, why is it gotta be so hard? And I think that's a fair question. But it's a good thing that verse 16, I think, answers that. So let's look at verse 16. After he kind of shares these few metaphors, Jesus kind of maybe interprets or applies it to give the reason why. So that's where we are now in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Whenever you see... Uh, in scripture, a so that, that's kind of an indicator to tell you why he just said something. And so, why, why would God make his kingdom like this and put his disciples at, to be salt and light in a place that's kind of dark and decaying? Well, why is that Jesus is saying is like maybe your relationship with the world would be an overflow of what you see as God's love for you. That your life, when people see the way you interact with, your, with the world, that they would only be able to explain, explain your behavior if they said, that guy must have a different king. He must be from a different kingdom and have a different, uh, a different leader, a different meaning for his life. And that people would look through that person, look through the disciple relating to the world and see God through you. And so I wanna kinda of call us back to the original question that we had and, and ask you, what percent of your life are you in control of? And I want you to recall, like, what, what are the areas of your life that you're limited in the, thing, in the areas of control? And consider that maybe these things, these things I have limited control over, are actually the same places that I tend to be the most dis- disappointed and discouraged throughout the week. And what I want you to consider is that maybe you're experiencing these things for this very point that Jesus is making in 16. Verse 16. Maybe the reason I'm in this current situation is that people might see how I respond and give glory to our Father. So let me propose to you a consideration that I think is good news, that if your disappointments are not meaningless, I'm sorry, your disappointments are not meaningless if your life isn't all about you, consider that. If I said to you, your disappointments are not meaningless. Your discouragements and hurt and pain and suffering are not meaningless if your life isn't all about you. If maybe the whole purpose of you being here is to point people to God. And so the way you react, the way you respond to the disappointing things in your life might actually have a purpose. They might have a purpose beyond you to point others to God. So how you respond to disappointments will be a testimony Of who you're living for so that's kind of abstract and I I understand that so how do you how do we apply this and this is a way that this text is ministered to me and I I hope it'd be an encouraging thing for you and it's I I read this somewhere it's it's some way I've applied this idea to my life and I think this text really pulls it out so let me just propose to you that maybe your disappointments and your discouragements, the things in that limited area of your life that you have limited control over, the things that disappoint you, maybe the only purpose that you would be going through that is that maybe five years from now, you would meet somebody who's going through the exact same thing. And you could tell that person, this is how God brought me through it. Maybe that's the only reason that I could give you, and obviously we can't know that, but what if that was like the only thing you could hold on to? I can't explain why all these bad things are happening to me i can't explain why these people keep disappointing me but maybe the only reason i could hold on to is that maybe there's some sort of a purpose outside of myself that could be used to encourage somebody and maybe point them to god so if you consider that and consider that maybe it could be used to be an encouragement would that make it a little bit more worth it if you considered maybe this isn't meaningless Maybe there's a purpose to how I respond to this disappointment today. Would it be more worth it to consider that? Maybe it could be used for maybe extending God's glory and, and sharing and encouraging somebody else. I think it would. It would make, it feel, make you feel a little bit better to consider that. And I want to ask you maybe why. Like, why does that feel better? Why is it, why is it a good news to know that, well, maybe my, my, meaning, or my disappointments aren't meaningless? And I think we like knowing that there's purpose to our suffering. We like knowing that this, isn't, this doesn't have uh, no meaning, it's not meaningless, but it has some sort of purpose. We like knowing that. And not only that, but you and I long for people to understand our sufferings. We want someone to understand the things that we might be going through, and it's an encouraging thing to hear that, oh, I, I know what it's like to be in your situation, and, and those people are especially encouraging to us. So wouldn't it be so nice if we had somebody that we could, we could cling to that knows our sufferings. Wouldn't it be so nice if we considered that there might be a king that has borne our sorrows and, and shared our sufferings? And that's exactly where this points to Jesus here. Because Jesus is a perfect example for us of the Beatitudes. We talked about this. He, he's the one who he came here, he put on the limitations of, of sinful flesh, and he lived a perfect life. And he, he saw the sufferings of decaying and disappointing and dark and cold things that you and I experience today. He saw that. He really felt that. And that's really good news because as he was he's, he's on this mission uh, here on earth, he knew his purpose. Because as he was arrested and persecuted for things he didn't do, he didn't resist. Why didn't he resist? Why, why did he go to the cross? Because he saw a purpose to his suffering. He knew that there was meaning to the cross that could be used to redeem for himself a people that he would call his own. He knew that there was purpose to the persecution being nailed to a cross that it could be used to purchase his people. And so like the Beatitudes, these metaphors that we've been covering and we looked at for Jesus in describing the picture of him and how we are becoming in him and who we are becoming in him, Jesus is a great life-preserving salt. He is the great light that has shone on those in darkness. And look to him, I would encourage you, look to him as he will make you his. He has made the decaying into what's preserving and flavoring in this world. And he has made those in darkness into light. That's you and I. And now in him, he is making us to be salt and light. Our lives now have healing and a redemptive purpose because he has purchased us because of him and what he's done for our sake. And I can tell you this morning that if you're in Christ, your life has meaning. And there's there's purpose to your sufferings and disappointments because of Christ. So let's end with this question. How is a disciple salt and light in a dark, broken, cold, discouraging world? A A disciple is salt and light by clinging to Christ in the midst of a dark, discouraging, dark In discouraging world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, and that it could be an encouragement for us this morning. God, we admit that in and of ourselves, we cannot be salt, we cannot be light. We have no preserving nature of our own. We don't give meaning to anything, and we don't come to you with anything. But that's the good news, is that you have considered us, and you've come and suffered on our behalf, that we would be free to worship you and be the salt and light of the earth. God, we don't have any, any uh, light to shine in of ourselves, but we cling to you. And that testimony, of how we respond to the suffering and disappointing things in our life is actually your purpose to restore and redeem and, and give glory to, to the Father through the whole earth. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that. God, I pray that we would sing and worship and praise you for all you've done that we couldn't do on our own. God, we love you and thank you. And we want to give you glory for all that we do in worshiping and singing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.